0: Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast where the speaker gets to present his argument in just six minutes, and that is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. Today's discussion will be on two topics. What is going on in Ottawa with these truckers? And how have work apps fundamentally changed part-time work? Our first speaker is Eric Kaufman, who is a professor of politics at Birkbeck College at the University of London. Eric has spoken on the podcast twice before where he discussed the lack of political diversity on campus and why pollsters systematically underestimate the shy Trump voter. Today we'll hear from Eric about what is going on in Ottawa with these truckers and why is Trudeau escalating the situation and calling these truckers racist and misogynist and trying to implement martial law. Not everything is rosy in our neighbor to the north. Our second speaker is Daniel Altman, who is a chief economist at InstaWork. Daniel is going to explain how these new work apps have fundamentally changed the nature of part-time work for hourly workers who can now move seamlessly between industries and positions to meet their flexible schedules. This is a radical change in the labor market and may reduce structural and frictional unemployment for the better. You can find transcripts for this program and all of our previous episodes on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com, and you can listen to our podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. All right, let's begin with our first speaker, Eric Kaufman.
1: So we're here to talk about the Canadian trucker convoy, and we've got two conflicts going on here. The first is straightforward conflict between those who want to end cross-border vaccine mandates for truckers so that truckers don't have to isolate for 10 days and those who think these are necessary measures. You've got to balance deaths against freedom and productivity, and I'm not an expert enough to know where that balance lies. What's interesting to me is the secondary conflict playing out here between rural, white working class Canadians coming into Ottawa, colliding with a carefully curated image of Canada as a sort of multicultural, politically correct, moralistic country. You see flags being waved along the route on the Trans-Canada Highway to contest the meaning of Canada from liberal elite framed by Pierre Trudeau and now by his son Justin. Canadian progressive elite has reacted in a very disproportionate manner, and particularly Trudeau and some of the politicians, even the media, to this protest. Going back to September 2021, you heard Justin Trudeau talk about anti-vaxxer mobs launching, quote-unquote, racist, misogynist attacks, something which has absolutely nothing to do with the whole vaccine question and with the trucker convoy at all. Then we come to late December, and on a Quebec radio show, Trudeau again goes off on anti-vaxxers as very often misogynist and racist, essentially try to inject identity politics into something that has got nothing to do with racism or sexism. That The convoy was led by, quote, those that claim the superiority of the white bloodline and equate Islam to a disease. And this is a product of his fevered imagination. No shame in just applying these labels to this protest. And the media focusing heavily on the one or two Confederate and Nazi flags that could be found in the thousands of protesters and trying to make those stand in for the protest. Okay, what is the reaction of this in public opinion? This sort of left-wing populist misinformation does work to some degree. I mean, if you look at some of the surveys, one poll showed that 57% of respondents said, quote, the convoy was not about vaccine mandates, but an opportunity for right-wing supremacist groups to rally and voice their frustrations about society. That's 57% of people responded in that manner. In a 2019 poll, I found that over three quarters of supporters of the left-leaning liberal, New Democrat and Green parties said that the People's Party, which is the populist party in Canada, that's largely a anti-vaccine or at least anti-vaccine mandate party, called it a racist party. 60% of the Canadian electorate leans left. A majority of that group is buying into these media narratives about racism. This reflects, I think, a growing polarization in Canadian public opinion if you look as support for Trudeau amongst Conservative and People's Party voters, it is in single digits, has been for a few years now. Switching between the Liberals and the Conservatives is very rare. That never used to be the case, but it is now. So we're looking at a very US-style polarized situation, and Trudeau has been an extremely polarizing leader. Most people do not support the convoy. Two-thirds oppose it at only 22% support. However, what's interesting is that two-thirds of Canadians, say Prime Minister Trudeau's, Comments and actions have worsened the situation. And that includes between 90 and 100% of right-wing voters, that's Tory and PPC voters. I would actually contest the view that this is going to be enduring. And why do I say that? Immigration is not a central factor in this protest. And if you look at the voters for European right-wing populist parties or for Trump, that issue is central. The security and identity issues are really important. Libertarianism, such as being against vaccine mandates, has a relatively shallow base within most publics. Most people are relatively conservative culturally and lean somewhat to the left economically. So this is not likely to be something that endures. The pandemic is not gonna last forever. It's going to go away. And when it goes away, I think this issue is gonna die. However, I do think that the overreaction and the identity politics-based reaction of Trudeau and the Canadian progressive media will deepen the cleavages, moving Canada in the direction of US-style polarization.
0: Thanks, Eric. Why does Trudeau and the media claim that a group of truckers are racist and misogynistic?
1: Race, gender, and sexuality are central to their worldview. So this is what I would call cultural socialism or left modernism. And so sacred values are anti-racism, anti-sexism, and anti-homophobia. And they are looking for any way to attach these sacred values to the drama that's playing out, even if it doesn't belong. They're desperate to find these sorts of connections in order to validate a particular worldview. For these people, Canada is this progressive, multicultural paradise. And what they're identifying against is that bad old white settler male misogynist
0: culture. You're highlighting that at its core, the conflict is about what it means to be Canadian. But this isn't what the truckers were focusing on. The truckers wanted to end the vaccine and isolation requirements for crossing the border. And why do the truckers freak out the Canadian elites? Why did Trudeau go hiding in a cabin in the woods. (laughs) Well, I mean, this demographic,
1: rural white working class, is rarely seen in an urban protest. The big rigs are kind of frightening if you're just used to sort of sipping a latte in a cafe and looking at Priuses. I don't know how genuine the fear is or how much that is contrived
0: and performative. These truckers were draped in the Canadian flag. It's interesting that you focus on the Canadian flag because the media focused on an isolated swastika and Confederate flag as their symbol of choice. There were media
1: stories suggesting that this was using that flag in a dishonest way that was disguising their true motives, that essentially they would all be waving the Confederate and Nazi flags. I think
0: the tone really was one that, hey, you're kind of smearing this by using it. Eric, in your book, White Shift, you discuss the idea of Canada as a nation state. The elites are uncomfortable with the white English origin of the nation and prefer an open society that could take in millions of people from around the world with open immigration. This is some kind of post-nationalism, looking for a multicultural country. I would have thought that meant de-emphasizing national symbols like the Canadian flag. Well, in a way,
1: that is the logical end point, I suppose, of an anti-national Philosophy of the kind that Trudeau is an example of. I mean, what some would call Leninism, not Leninism, but John Lennonism. I've never heard of that before. If you listen to Trudeau say, you know, Canada has no core culture or identity, uh, that idea of a post national construct is very central to what he's about. Ironically, that's a kind of nationalism. Now, it's an unstable one because its endpoint is the erasing of national identity. Assuming that doesn't happen anytime soon, what it's about is saying, hey, we are advancing this post-national ideal further than anybody else. We're the most virtuous, and that's a form of pride we as Canadians have. So bizarrely, it is a form of nationalism, peculiarly, but which aims ultimately to probably erase the boundaries of nations. And then we have a trucker convoy, which is really probably more representative of the way a lot of Canada is, but it's the bad old Canada and it's coming to town and it's reminding them of the other that they're trying to suppress and get rid of. All of these largely white working class people coming into town in their big rigs
0: is very much a personification of everything that is not kind of multicultural woke Canada. The Ottawa truckers actions reminds me of the uprising by the Yellow Jackets in France where French working class people, including truckers, took to the streets outside of Paris and demanded change to a specific government policy related to the price of oil. And the Yellow Tackets, they were viewed in complete disbelief by the French Parisian elites. And when the Macron government tried to speak with their leadership, they couldn't find them because it was a spontaneous, decentralized movement. Yeah, I think you're right. I think
1: there's a lot that's similar there. The kind of, I won't say entirely leaderless, but heavily decentralized nature of the process. It's a sort of blue collar protest against elites. And in a way, there's a libertarian element to both. One group wanting not to
0: have very high fuel prices, and the other arguing against vaccine mandates. Another similarity is the type of people that participate in this public protest. In America, we had the Tea Party took to the streets, wrapping themselves in the American flag. The elites were in shock that these people even existed. <laughs> and how dare these yahoos interfere with my travel plans to my weekend estate? You're actually right that the reaction is in
1: common. The only thing that I would say is that there's a real double standard depending on who is causing them grief. So if it's BLM in native aboriginal pipeline protest or, or their supporters, then it's a very different reaction. Is it something that the elite can identify as part of our vision of this kind of utopian multicultural Canada, or does it represent the other? And let's face it also, and there's been studies on this that. Urban protest is largely a progressive left activity. Very rarely do you get
0: conservative groups protesting in significant numbers. Trudeau and Macron reacted quite differently to these street protests. Macron tried to find common ground and quickly changed his policies, while Trudeau is ready to apply martial law. I think that's right. Macron is not woke. He's said many things that have got
1: him attacked by the progressive left. He talks tough on immigration. Trudeau is really much different. Trudeau is sort of full throttle, 100%. We're going to have as high immigration as we can. Everybody's a racist and misogynist. He sort of never misses an opportunity to dress in foreign attire. He's talking about Canada having no identity.
0: There seems to be a fight between the Canadian elites who want unlimited immigration and oppose a national identity and the working-class Canadians who want limited immigration and think positively of the nation and its symbols when I grew up in Canada in the 80s and
1: 90s, there was nothing but French versus English. And that's kind of been the theme through Canadian history. That's largely, I won't say it's gone, but it's much, much more muted. These new cleavages around multiculturalism versus nationalism. The American style divides are becoming much more important. Quebec's. Electoral landscape is now quite different. The separatists are down in the low 30s. The separatist threat from Saskatchewan and Alberta is higher than in Quebec.
0: I think that's kind of a metaphor for the kinds of conflicts that are going to be gripping Canada going forward. How does partisanship explain the public reaction to Trudeau's handling of the Ottawa truckers? Conservative
1: voters are about split on the protest. So it's not that sort of very defining partisan issue. However, views on Trudeau's handling of it do have the capacity to become much more of that kind of issue. Even amongst liberal and NDP voters, only half of them give Trudeau a passing grade.
0: So it's opinion toward Trudeau that really polarizes Canadians on party lines. Canada has a much higher vaccination rate than the US. The Canadian truckers are 90% vaccinated. So why is the Trudeau government doubling down on this group of workers? They've won. Why are they turning this into a fight? There's a symbolic aspect to this. Mask mandates
1: have been sucked into politics of progressive versus conservative in North America, and I think Trudeau's framing this as you've got anti-vax racist misogynists on the one hand, and then you have a moral progressive Canadians on the other. With the secondary drama around the meaning of Canada, around progressivism, and this binary
0: dichotomy between the good and the bad. Why do you think that in the U.S., There is real anger against Whites who do not vaccinate, but there's little venom for minorities. You make a very good point. I mean, the Sikhs around Vancouver, they have a higher
1: rate of non-vaccination. And that is simply something that will get minimal attention, or if it does get attention, it's framed in such a way as, oh, well, this is very much understandable because they have been racialized, therefore they don't trust, when it is a group that can be identified with that progressive multicultural utopia we're building with our sacred values, then it's a completely different attitude to anti-vax than towards the legacy population that we're trying to get past that represent the other to our project, the sort of reaction is much more on this symbolic level about what Canada represents and who represents the forces of darkness and the forces of progress. The other important thing to point out, by the way, is that roughly 60% of the English-Canadian electorate is voting for the left versus only 40% for a right-wing party, whereas in most Countries such as Britain or the U.S., it's more like 50-50. And because it's 60-40, there are all kinds of electoral incentives to be crazier left than the other parties. What Trudeau needs to do is to eat into the NDP vote by appealing to the
0: woke left while sort of tacking economically to the center. Last week, we had a discussion of the Joe Rogan controversy and his podcast with Robert Malone, who challenges the vaccine orthodoxy. And that blew up and simultaneously, Rogan was called a racist. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is all
1: about us and them, and it's the them or the other being defined on the basis of being white male working class other, right? Rogan is slotted into that binary. He may have only ticked one box around anti-vax, but the other stuff attaches to him. Misogyny and racism just automatically, it's all part of a package. Because race and gender and sexuality are the sacred values, they have to be invoked wherever possible. You can stretch the evidence just so that you can invoke those powerful taboos about the violation and profanation of the sacred. So yeah, I think that is the common denominator here in this
0: woke ideology. It can't keep using the same taboos over and over again because if you call everyone a racist or a misogynist, then it loses its power. Are we reaching that tipping point yet? Yeah, I think it has all kinds of downstream
1: ramifications. One of the downstream ramifications is that (laughs) you may mobilize the other side. They react. Trudeau's abuse of the truckers could be like the deplorables moment with Hillary Clinton. In Britain, you had Gordon Brown talk about the bigoted woman, that Gillian Duffy incident. These sorts of incidents seem to create powerful narratives which tend to mobilize populists. Canada has these extremely strong politically correct taboos. You cannot talk about immigration levels. We know from the European case and also the Trump case, that simply means that the mainstream conservative party can't touch immigration, which opens room for a populist right party like the PPC. Now, in Canada, because of several generations of indoctrination into multiculturalism and so on. The population has shifted, it is 60% on the left and inventing Canada as a left-wing country. The backlash is, okay, they're not gonna win power, but what they are going to do is entrench polarization. And that could show up
0: in a vitriolic level of public debate that we're seeing now. Positive feedback loops from protests. The BLM movement was successful in one city and it spread like wildfire nationwide. Same with the Yellow Jackets in France. Do you think the Ottawa truckers could serve as an example for anti-vaccine mandates across Canada and potentially North America? There are going to be copycats, there's no doubt about
1: it, but whether this can sustain itself the way the Yellow Jacks is, I guess I'm skeptical. I just don't think the level of public support is there. COVID and the pandemic, let's say it fades in six months. This issue's then gone from the public space, and all of the populism that's been built upon that narrow issue will dissipate. Immigration. Immigration, which is much more durable, and a question of the future of the nation. Even the class divide,
0: that's much more durable. You're a professor at the University of London. Tell us about Boris Johnson and Partygate.
1: It's really tough. You talk to people here, and different people say he's done, other people say he isn't. I think it's all going to be down to the polls and what happens in the sort of local elections in May. If his polling remains poor and the party gets thumped at the local elections, I think he's out. If, however, he hangs on and somehow the local elections aren't as bad as people think, because one of the things that's been happening is there's been a big change in the polls, so the Tories are now behind Labour. But what's happened is a lot of those Tory voters and the old Brexit voters have simply gone into apathy. They haven't gone to Labour. And there's a question about if it came to a contest with Labour in a general election, would they hold their nose and vote for Johnson? Probably a lot of them would. We just don't know the exact number. He was the politician that got Brexit done. So he got good marks for that. He has been given reasonably good marks by the electorate for his handling of the pandemic. I don't think people fault him substantively. The problem is he campaigned as he's the guy who represents the little guy against the corrupt elite. And then he turns around and he's got all these parties. He's refurbishing his apartment with all this fancy stuff and spending. So in a way, he came across as sort of high-handed and elitist when he was supposed to be the
0: populist. I end each episode on a note of optimism. Eric, what are you optimistic about? What am I optimistic about? I'm optimistic that this pandemic is going to fade
1: in six months or sooner. I am sick of it, and it would be nice to talk about something else.
0: I want to welcome Daniel Altman on today's podcast of What Happens Next. Daniel is the chief economist for the employment app InstaWork that helps workers and employers find each other for both short and long-term work. A few days ago, Daniel had the lead op-ed in The Wall Street Journal about whether task-oriented jobs are properly included in government employment statistics, Now, why is this important? The critical question facing macroeconomic policymakers today is whether or not we are at full employment. Because if we are, then we can't be adding fiscal and monetary stimulus to an economy without inflation. Daniel, please begin your six-minute presentation.
2: I'm Daniel Altman. I'm the first chief economist at InstaWork, which is a flexible work app that brings together hourly professionals and businesses across the country in many different industries. Today, I wanna talk to you about something strange that happened with the government's surveys of workers. Between 2019 and 2021, the Labor Department apparently lost track of about 6 million hourly workers. At least, the counts went down by that much. In fact, in 2020, they were down by about 9 million, but we're still missing 6 million hourly paid workers. Where could they have gone? Full time employment has actually recovered to its pre pandemic levels, while part time employment is still six or seven percent below. So, does this represent a real decrease in the labor force, or is there something else going on? Well, surveys take place during a reference week every month. Now, if you haven't been working in that week and you're not employed on a salary basis or full time position, then you won't be counted as in the labor force. So if you're taking a little time off, if you're ill, and normally you might try and work a few shifts, a few hours here and there, it doesn't matter. You'll be out of the labor force that week, whereas someone with a permanent job who takes vacation or sick leave will still be counted as in the labor force. So there's some leakage from the surveys that the government conducts when people take time off from unconventional working arrangements. Now. The government also counts self employed people. And you might think a lot of these six million may have become self employed, as so many did apparently during the pandemic. Well, that's probably not what the government is seeing either, because they only counted another 100,000 people becoming self employed since the pandemic began. So, where did these people go? Well, there are a lot of people who work on a shift or task or hourly basis, who wouldn't necessarily count themselves as self-employed because they're still working for other businesses. But millions of them have signed up for what we're calling flexible work apps. That means they're getting an app on their phone or their computer that helps to match them with businesses who value their skills and want to employ them. These apps helped the economy in several different ways. One is to reduce frictional Unemployment. Now, what's frictional unemployment? It's the unemployment that happens during the job search process. There are workers and there are businesses that are looking to find each other, but they just can't, just hard to find information about the workers you want. Well, these apps help to reduce that. And so by reducing frictional unemployment, we allow the economy to employ more people and grow a bit faster. We also help the quality of matching between workers and businesses because they find out about each other. A lot of these apps, including InstaWork, have reputation mechanisms. So you can grade the workers who work for you and they can grade your company as well. Workers are able to evaluate many offers of employment by different businesses at the same time. And that gives them bargaining power. And so it's no surprise to see that workers' share of national income has actually been growing through the pandemic. When we look at the workers who are participating in these apps, we notice a few things. First, we see that they value flexibility across three dimensions. They value flexibility in time, being able to work at day or at night or one week on, one week off, however they choose to do it. They value it across geography. We see workers who work in different metropolitan areas at different times of the year and they also value it across roles. We'll see workers who work in different industries. They might work one shift as a busser and another shift as a warehouse associate. They have lots of combinations and they're free to pick whichever ones they want. This is really transformative for the economy because these people are carving out new ways to work and indeed to create a whole career. But it's also transformative for policy because if we are successful in reducing frictional unemployment, and getting rid of these other frictions in the labor markets, then the economy may have a lower natural rate of unemployment. That means that we can sustain a lower rate of unemployment without creating a lot of inflation. Now, that's going to be big news for policymakers like the Federal Reserve. They need to know what rates of unemployment can be targeted without creating a lot of inflation.
0: Each month, the Bureau of Labor Statistics does a household survey to evaluate the job market. The BOS calls 50,000 households in the last week of the month and asks whether anyone who lives in the house got a new job or lost one. Now, what's challenging about this is that net employment change is often less than one in a 1,000, so small differences is what we're looking for. And I think what you're saying, Daniel, is that the specific survey questions might be insufficient.
2: When someone in a household gets asked whether they worked in the previous week, they may say no but that doesn't mean that they're not in the labor force. If you're someone who decides to work full-time one week or maybe even more, 60, 80 hours one week, and then not at all the next week because that's how you like to do it, you like to go surfing the other week, let's say, then you're still working 30, 40 hours a week on average, but you're working one week on, one week off. Now, if the government happens to survey you during the week that you're surfing, they will say that's a person who's not in the labor force. But clearly that's not true because this person is working about 30, 40 hours a week on average. So there's this random element that's been introduced here. And as a result of that, miss what their working status is, we may be leaving them out of the labor force entirely.
0: Do you think these work apps have changed the labor market?
2: We have had this proliferation of these flexible work apps over the past couple of years. And I think part of that is because the pandemic created an opportunity in a couple of different ways. People may have been ill with COVID or barred from the workplace because of a COVID test. They may have had to take care of loved ones because of COVID. And a flexible schedule may have become more attractive as a result of that. Also, if your workplace has closed down for some reason or you're on furlough, you may not be looking for a permanent position, but you might be looking to make some extra cash. Working shifts here and there, while you wait for your layoff or your furlough to end, could have been a viable way to continue earning income for some people. And so what we've
0: just seen in the pandemic has only accelerated what the technological way it started. Do you think the nature of work is changing? I mean, in old societies, you'd work for one firm for your whole life, or work in one industry or job function for a lifetime. And now you can mix things up on a moment's notice. The definition of a job has definitely changed over time. It used to be
2: that a job was a full-time permanent position, or even a part-time but still permanent position, where you expected to go to work every week. If somebody does a couple of shifts over a couple of weeks of the same business, is that a job? What if they get a three-month assignment? Is that a job? We don't even really have many contracts anymore. Most people are in at-will employment anyway. It's not as though people even on a more permanent position have that much more job security.
0: Would you suggest changing the household survey questions to deal with the changing nature of work?
2: I referred earlier to the hourly paid workers that the census counts. That's where the six million number came from, six million that were missing since the pandemic began. Now, hourly paid just comes from one survey question on the household survey where they ask, are you regularly paid, hourly, weekly, monthly, et cetera? Now, somebody answering that question might say, well, gee, I don't know. I mean, I worked and I had an hourly rate, but I get paid based on the number of tasks I complete or or I get paid because I did a shift over a course of four days? Does that count as hourly paid? There's too much room to be able to interpret it in
0: different ways. The employment market is hard to measure. How could you evaluate labor supply or labor demand? We have both public and private surveys to help us. We can see that we have hiring signs in every storefront and we know that the labor market is tight. And the labor market is akin to many markets, which is opaque. So the one thing that all markets have in common is price. And if prices are rising, then there was either an increase in demand or reduction in available supply or both. Well, wages are surging up 5.7% year on year. What do you make of wage inflation as a proxy for labor market dynamics?
2: There have been labor supply shortages at times, especially during the most recent Omicron wave of COVID-19. And we saw on our platform where we have real-time transaction data from the labor market, that wages did increase very quickly during that period. We had more firms that were filling shifts on short notice and offering higher wages. We expect some of that heat to come out of the market now, but we did see over the year, even up to November 2021, that there was a really dramatic increase in wages, especially for these hourly professionals that far exceeded the levels of inflation that were measured by the government. Companies don't necessarily like to raise wages, but once they've done it, it's very hard to cut them. So we're unlikely to see a decline in wages. What people will be more looking for is to see whether real wages decline with time if companies then postpone other raises that they might
0: have planned into the future. Vittorio Saf spoke on what happens next in March 2020. And he said that due to the government's forced closure of restaurants related to COVID, Serafina had to terminate 1,000 employees. And when I asked Vittorio, would it be easy to rehire these workers? He said it would be incredibly difficult because his former employees would likely move all over the world. People have been dislocated. It's hard to bring people
2: back. We've seen it even country to country. You know, people who were expatriates decided to go home to their home country so they could be with family before quarantine restrictions would even prevent them from doing that. And the idea that they would suddenly return the moment the office was ready to reopen is silly. So I think there's certainly some of that contributing to the increases in wages, too, because... If, let's say, you have a high-end restaurant and it took you a long time to hire a very professional staff, and now you've lost some of those people, but all of a sudden you have to recover the staff quickly, well, how are you going to get really high-quality professionals on short notice? You have to pay a high wage. There's a secondary effect, which is if you start offering a high wage, you're going to get a lot of applications from everybody, not just the high-end professionals. So it comes down to your ability to discern those
0: high-end professionals. Before the pandemic, many older workers were semi-retired. They worked, I don't know, one or two days a week. Let me give you an example. One of my dad's best friends is a doctor who shares a nurse with a few other semi-retired doctors, and they had office hours once or twice a week, and the economics justified buying medical malpractice insurance. When the pandemic hit, it no longer made sense to continue, and the doctors closed their medical office permanently. Do you think that COVID encouraged permanent retirement of semi-retired workers? The
2: story about the elderly has some credence to it. There's no doubt that we've seen a decline in labor force participation in that demographic. We don't have that many elderly signups relative to other age groups on our app, and that
0: may be a function of technological literacy as well as the will to work. With kids going to school from home, a parent needs to be nearby. It's likely mom, and that suggests that women will be more likely to drop out of the workforce to take care of the youngsters. Once kids went back to school, women may be lacked to re-enter the workforce. Now, we've not seen a substantial shift of men to women in the national employment statistics. What are you
2: seeing in your app? The mothers, that's something that we have a little bit of insight about. We actually get more women than men signing up for InstaWork, but we actually have more men than women working shifts. The ones who can actually go and show up because these are mostly in-person occupations that they're doing have been slightly more men than women. And you could hypothesize that it has
0: something to do with childcare. Do you suspect that Child care requirements might apply to fathers as well, and that may explain some of the decline in worker participation rates.
2: Maybe some of the men are having to do child care and other home caring as well, that's keeping them in the home. We know that this has been an incredibly taxing time for families. Can you imagine sitting at home trying to work remotely while one child needs help with their schoolwork on the iPad and then the other child who's younger has nothing to do and, and you feel your heart being torn out as you see that other child basically having to fend for themselves? It's incredibly difficult and there has been a lot more need for attention in the home. As the pandemic recedes, some of these pressures Will dissipate a little bit. These dislocations in the economy, these shocks can move us into different professions, different roles that we might not have considered before. I've certainly read plenty of stories of people who said, well, I finally decided to just follow my passion. You know, my workplace closed, so I decided to try something else. And so I think we're seeing a lot more fluidity, you know, what some people might call creative destruction in a different sort of way in
0: the economy. And those changes are likely to stick. Nobel Prize winner Ronald Coase wrote an essay entitled The Firm that makes the argument that the reason firms exist is because of transaction costs related to employment, ongoing relationships with customers, and suppliers. His idea is that in a perfect world without transaction costs, customers would find workers to solve their problems seamlessly without the need of a firm. But because it's really hard to negotiate daily employment or individual task-based contracts, firms exist to hire workers for the long-term to provide labor to customers. But as technology reduces these transaction costs, we would expect customers to transact directly with workers and that workers would move towards an individual task-oriented labor contract in lieu of lifetime employment with a single firm. There's no doubt that transaction
2: costs play a very important role in the nature of the firm. And... As you say, to have to recontract all your workers every day, all your suppliers, your labor is just one of the inputs that goes into whatever you're making. So to have to do that every day would be kind of wild. But then when you look at it from the B2C perspective, You also say, well, consumers want to have a firm that they can continue to return to and they'll have some expectations about the product and the timing of the service delivery that they'll get. Transaction costs by themselves aren't the only justification for the existence of firms. We want them from the consumer's perspective as well. When you look at the labor market, eliminating these frictions where you have buyers and sellers that will make the markets more efficient.
0: Firms need skilled employees and they will invest to make employees more productive. But if the firm invests in general skills, the employee will get most of the benefits because otherwise he can quit and join another company. But if the skills are firm-specific, then the firm gets the benefits. How do you think about job trading in this new world of task-specific contract relations and little affiliation with the firms?
2: One of the problems and one of the reasons why firms underinvest in training is that they're afraid – in our at-will employment market that somebody will just pick up those skills and then leave, and they won't get any compensation. However, it doesn't work like that in every market. For example, in international soccer, you're required by the administrative body's rules to pay a compensation fee to a club that has trained a young player when that young player moves to a different club. It makes sure that the clubs still invest in the training of young players and that those clubs that pick up the young players all over the world can stay in business. I think that we should have something like that. If a firm trains you where you get some sort of certification that you've picked up a skill, then that should come with a fee when the worker changes employers. Now, that's inserting a friction into the labor market that wasn't there before. But you are solving this problem of
0: underinvestment in training. Last October Claudia Golden, a Harvard professor of economics, joined us. Besides being the former head of economics department at Harvard, she was also my teacher at Penn, where I was her student in an introduction to microeconomics course. Claudia has some new research on why women make less than men for similar work. Claudia suggests that some work requires flexible work hours. Work needs to be done off hours, on short notice, far from home. And that work is problematic for women who have childcare responsibilities and thus garners higher per hour wages. I think what's exciting about these apps is that women can match their skills with a flexible work environment and take that higher paying work when it's available and suitable for them. How do you think about flexibility and gender based compensation?
2: Well the apps offer our hourly professionals lots of options of when to work, where to work and how to work. It doesn't change what the worker's own constraints are. If they wouldn't work that time in a conventional job, then they might not want to work that same time in a flexible job. But what it does allow them to do is to create their own schedule. And so hopefully it creates more economic opportunities by allowing them to earn a higher income within the constraints that they already face. Claudia's an old professor of mine. I had her at Harvard as
0: a grad student. It's amazing the power and influence that a great professor or teacher like Claudia Golden can have on their students over a lifetime in terms of insight, enthusiasm for a field, and skill building. Frictions in the employee-employee relationship include knowing the true skills of the employee and whether the employer is trustworthy, accurately pays for performance, and excels at training. So back in 2009, I wrote a piece for
2: the Huffington Post called The Future of Journalism is eBay. I had spent several years as a journalist at that point, and it seemed to me with the increasing use of freelancers that we were headed in a direction where we would just have buyers and sellers who would transact pieces on a marketplace. And people would have reputational scores, both the editors and the reporters. The editors could put out calls for pieces that they wanted to attract, and the reporters could similarly post pieces that they'd written or pitches that they had for bidding. And I think that we certainly could run into this area for Things like journalism where you're kind of working on a piecework basis, right? But for something that's a bit more involved where you have longer term projects and they're not as easily defined, it might not be quite so easy to do this. You want to build long term relationships. We find on InstaWork that firms will work with a professional a couple of times, then they'll start requesting that professional on a shift basis, and eventually they will hire that professional on a full time basis in house. And that's something that we love to see because it means someone's getting a better
0: opportunity and job security as well. The biggest disconnect in the labor market is that it is national and not international in scope. We cannot get a haircut from someone who lives in Mexico unless he moves here. But work that can be done remotely opens up opportunities for overseas workers. Now this is fabulous for customers because the task will be much cheaper. It'll be great for overseas workers because they can earn more money. And it'll be a catastrophe for domestic workers who have to compete with labor from the third world. How will your apps put customers or domestic firms in contact with individuals outside the United States?
2: It's a very interesting question because when we start to move full-time jobs, the type of permanent positions that the government usually likes to monitor and regulate, towards offshore and remote work then we could run into some legal implications. I can certainly see that for remote work, it's happening already. Certainly at InstaWork, we employ people all over the world because we're looking for the best talent wherever we can find it. It doesn't have to be on a freelance basis, but some firms may decide that that's the best way for them to go to reduce red tape. It's just a question of how much the
0: government will tolerate it. I end each session on a note of optimism. Daniel, what are you optimistic about?
2: I'm optimistic that we're gonna continue to chip away at frictional and structural unemployment, which are two of the toughest types of unemployment to eliminate in the economy, because frictional unemployment has to do with the way the labor market actually works, and structural unemployment has to do with the mismatches that we see between skills and the need for work. I think that apps like InstaWork can continue to use technology to eliminate the frictions, And hopefully policymakers in Washington and the states will do more to eliminate the structural problems that we have by helping workers
0: to retrain and get the education and skills they need to be productive. Thanks to Eric and Daniel for joining us today. That ends today's session. And I want to make a plug for next week's show. Our first speaker will be University of Chicago economist John List, who will discuss his book, The Voltage Effect, How to Make Good Ideas Great and Great Ideas Scale. We're going to learn about scaling for apps like Uber and why most great ideas do not scale efficiently because there's some feature that can't be wrapped up. Our second speaker will be our longtime guest, Dr. Ari Sement, who will discuss the latest developments in the ongoing COVID saga. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes, or if you're just reading a transcript, you can find them on our website, whatappensnext, six minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Thanks to our audience, as always, for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.